Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for May 2019. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month, or in this case, last couple of months. So let's start with JAMA and the SCARLET randomized clinical trial. So this is the effect of a recombinant human soluble thrombomodulin on mortality in patients with sepsis-associated coagulopathy. The rationale behind asking this question is that sepsis-associated coagulopathy, defined as prolonged INR and reduced platelet count, is highly predictive of 28-day mortality. Activated protein C, which is now off the market, had a notable mortality benefit in sepsis with DIC. So it was an anticoagulation agent of interest. So ART123 is a soluble thrombomodulin composed of 498 amino acids from the soluble and active extracellular domains of thrombomodulin. It's primary mechanism is its capacity to bind circulating thrombin molecules and serve as an activation complex to convert protein C to activated protein C. In addition, it inhibits inflammation and organ injury caused by damage-associated molecular patterns such as high-mobility group box protein 1 and histones. Post-hoc analysis of a phase 2b RCT of patients with sepsis and suspected DIC suggested reduced mortality associated with ART123 administration was best predicted when three factors were present. Infection, at least one sepsis-associated organ dysfunction, and coagulopathy. So the hypothesis was uh, this thrombomodulin would reduce 28-day mortality in patients with sepsis-associated coagulopathy. The study details... It was a double-blind, multinational, multi-center, phase 3 RCT in adult patients with sepsis-associated coagulopathy and cardiovascular and or respiratory failure within 40 hours of their first abnormal INR. They were randomized to an IV bolus or a 15-minute infusion of thrombomodulin or placebo daily for six days. Baseline groups were balanced with a median INR of 1.8 and platelets of 120. The primary outcome, which was 28-day all-cause mortality, was not different, 26.8% for thrombomodulin versus 29.4% for placebo, p-value of 0.32. There was no difference in primary outcome in specified subgroups based on Apache score, heparin versus no heparin, etc., and there's no difference in post-hoc subgroup analysis when considering severity of baseline coagulopathy. It is of note that 20% of patients did not meet coagulopathy criteria, and the effect signal was stronger in groups with coagulopathy when looking at Kaplan-Meier curves. The 20% arose because of the increase from 15 to 40 hours of inclusion time allowing some patients to normalize INR during this period. Secondary outcomes, incidence of serious major bleeding adverse events, was 5.8% for thrombomodulin and 4% for placebo. Long-term outcomes are still being collected. 
So overall, thrombomodulin did not significantly reduce 28-day all-cause mortality in patients with sepsis-associated coagulopathy or improve secondary outcomes. Okay, let's move on to the big two trials in the last couple of months. The first in the New England Journal of Medicine is early neuromuscular blockade in the acute respiratory distress syndrome published by the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute Petal Clinical Trials Network. So in 2010, the Papazian Acurasis study reported in patients with severe ARDS that early administration of a neuromuscular blocking agent for 48 hours was associated with improved adjusted 90-day survival and decreased ventilator duration. Despite this result, the practice of early neuromuscular blockade in ARDS is not widely adopted with concerns regarding translation of the deep sedation practices used in the current environment of lightning sedation and also about long-term effects of neuromuscular blocking agents. The ROSE trial, which is re-evaluation of systemic early neuromuscular blockade, examines the role of neuromuscular blocking and heavy sedation in ARDS in a modern strategy of usual care with lighter sedation targets. So this is what they did. They enrolled patients with mechanical ventilation via an ETT and ARDS criteria with no cardiac failure or fluid overload. And they received either 48 hours of neuromuscular blockade and heavy sedation or no neuromuscular blockade and lighter sedation. So the neuromuscular blockade and heavy sedation group got cisatricurium bolus and infusion, which could be stopped if FiO2 improved uh, for at least 12 hours. The lighter group got no neuromuscular blockade and a light sedation aimed for a RAS of 0 or minus 1. All of them received a low tidal volume strategy for up to 5 days, aiming for a P plateau of less than 30 centimeters of water and a pH of greater than 7.15. Proning occurred at the discretion of the team. Now the trial was stopped at the second interim analysis for futility with a thousand of six of a planned 1,488 participants enrolled. The baseline characteristics were similar and during the first 24 hours the intervention group had lower PEEF requirements, lower mechanical ventilation, lower FiO2 and higher driving pressures. The neuromuscular blockade and sedation was different between groups, that is, they received their allocated treatments. The primary outcome was in-hospital death at 90 days, and it was 42.5% in the intervention group versus 42.8% in the control group. That's pretty close. At 28 days, there was no difference of hospital mortality, ventilator-free days, ICU-free days, use of adjunct therapies. Proning was used in 16% of patients, and the one-year estimated mortality was 51%. More serious cardiovascular events were reported in the intervention group than in the control group, 14 versus 4, and patient-reported health-related outcomes and limitations in function were no different at 3, 6, and 12 months. So a decade after the first neuromuscular blockade in ARDS big trial, the ROSE trial reports no difference in mortality, hospital or ICU use, 
patient-reported outcomes when comparing neuromuscular blockade and deep sedation versus lighter sedation only in ARDS. And it seems to me that that's a pretty impressive, solid negative trial. Let's stay with the big ticket trials. Also in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have the SPICE study, and we've been waiting for this. Early sedation with dexmedetomidine in critically ill patients by Yaya Shahabi and colleagues. So we have wondered about dexmedetomidine use in general in ICU patients, and we've had some evidence to date. So in the DESIRE study, we had treatment with dexmedetomidine in patients with sepsis did not improve either ventilator-free days or 28-day mortality, 23 versus 31%. In the MEN's study, we had a subgroup of septic patients receiving dexmedetomidine, and they had more days free of brain dysfunction and mechanical ventilation and were less likely to die than those that received a lorazepam-based sedation regime. And in Dahlia, we had dexmedetomidine in addition to standard care for ventilated patients with agitated delirium who were otherwise ready for extubation, led to an increase in ventilator-free days, more rapid resolution of delirium, and decreased use of antipsychotic and sedative medication. In addition, there was a non-significant decrease in ICU length of stay. The authors did comment in this study that 21,000 patients were screened to recruit 74, limiting the applicability of this finding more generally. That is, earlier delirium, patients with agitated delirium and other reasons to remain ventilated. So, on to SPICE 3, which looked at early dexmedetomidine in ventilated patients. So, 74 ICUs, multinational, open-label, RCT, 4,000 patients. This is a big study. Adult ventilated patients expected to require mechanical ventilation beyond tomorrow, excluding brain injury, and they got analgesia per the treating team. The sedation target was a RAS of minus 2 to plus 1, unless deemed unsafe by the treating team, and daily delirium assessment using CAM if the RAS was minus 2 or higher. The dexmedetomidine group now, the aim was to have dexmedetomidine as the sole sedative agent if possible. It was commenced at 1 mic per kilo per hour with no load and adjusted to a maximum of 1.5 mic per kilo per hour for the target RAS. Propofol was allowed the lowest possible dose if the maximum dexmedetomidine dose was not able to achieve the target RAS. Benzos were discouraged and intervention was continued for up to 28 days. Usual care groups got prop, medaz, or other sedatives as directed by the treating team. Antipsychotics, including haloperidol and quetiapine, were allowed for treatment of agitated delirium if the currently administered sedative agents were not sufficient. So what did they see? Well, patients were similar at baseline, and the median time from eligibility to randomization was 4.6 hours. So that's quick. They got the intervention drug in early. The primary outcome which was modified intention to treat of day 90 death was 29.1% for dexmedetomidine versus 29.1% for usual care. You can't get much more equivocal than that. 
Secondary outcomes, there was no significant difference in the secondary analysis of mortality, no difference in 180-day mortality, IQ code, EQ5D3L, no significant difference, institutional dependency, days free from coma, ventilator-free days. In terms of sedation, there were differences in the first two days, but we're not sure what they mean. Sedation used, 65% of the dexmedetomidine group needed propofol. There was an interesting subgroup analysis that suggested usual care was associated with better outcomes with patients aged less than the median age of 63.7 years, and dexmedetomidine was associated with better outcomes in patients greater than the median age of 63.7 years. Uncontrolled agitation during the study was 2.3% in the DEXMED group and 3.9% in the usual care group, and that was significant, P of 0.003, and there's no cost analysis yet. So overall, the SPICE trial, which is 4,000 ventilated patients, reported that dexmedetomidine versus usual care for early routine sedation was associated with no difference in the primary outcome of 90-day death and no difference in secondary outcomes. Lots of dexmedetomidine patients required propofol. There was a difference in agitation and there is no cost analysis. I'm sure we'll hear more about this and depending on your views of routine use of dexmedetomidine, you'll interpret this how you want. But this is a must-read trial. Let's move on to JAMA and the PRINCESS randomized clinical trial. The effect of transnasal evaporative intra-arrest cooling on functional neurological outcome in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So, there is probably a diverse range of opinions about therapeutic cooling after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, from don't believe in it to advocating temperature management in a target from 32 to 36 degrees Celsius for 24 to 72 hours. In addition, there is the question of pre-hospital cooling and the technique used for this cooling. This RCT of 677 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest examines the efficacy of intra-arrest transnasal cooling for adults with bystander witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now the possible benefits of intranasal evaporative cooling are avoidance of the volume and hemodynamic effects of cold saline and the ability to be rapidly used in arrest with preferential cooling of the brain. Patients randomized to cooling received a mixture of air or oxygen and a liquid coolant which was a perfluorohexane via nasal catheter. As the coolant evaporates, it absorbs heat from the surrounding tissue and rapidly cools the nasal cavity to about 2 degrees Celsius. The method was developed primarily to cool the brain because it takes advantage of the nasal pathways, that is the conchal folds and turbinates. And that provides a highly vascular and large diffuse surface area that is in close proximity to the cerebral circulation. If ROSC occurred, cooling was continued until hospital arrival and patients who randomized to standard care received no cooling. All patients followed post-resuscitation guidelines, including targeted temperature management. So what did they find? Patients were similar at baseline. In terms of temperature management, the median time to cooling in the treatment group was 19 minutes from collapse. The temperature at ED arrival was 34.8 versus 35.7. The time to target it temperature was 105 minutes in the intervention group and 180 minutes in the control group. The primary outcome was 90-day survival with CPC 1 or 2, which was 
16.6 versus 13.5%, relative risk 1.23, confidence intervals 0.86 to 1.72, and that's not significant. The 90-day survival in the subgroup, the shockable rhythm with CPC 1 to 2, was 34.8 versus 25.9%, relative risk of 1.28, and again, not significant due to the confidence intervals. In terms of secondary outcomes, there was no difference in overall survival, no difference of distribution of CPC category for all comers. In shockable rhythm subgroup, there was a difference in CPC1, which was 32.6%, compared in the intervention group, compared to 20% in the control group, and there was no difference in adverse events. So, overall, pre-hospital transnasal evaporative intra-arrest cooling did not result in an improvement in survival with good neurological outcome for adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The subgroup analysis of patients with shockable rhythm revealed an area of further interest, that is, an increase in good recovery, CPC1, in the intervention versus the control group. Now, the authors note the intervention may have been too late, that is, the time to cooling was 105 minutes after CPR, which was due to cooling being placed uh, by a secondary EMS vehicle. Either way, that further study of shockable rhythms and looking for improvement in CPC1 outcomes will be an area that we will watch with great interest. Okay, let's move on to two different papers written in the last couple of months. The first in critical care medicine is Towards Gender Equity in Critical Care Medicine, a Qualitative Study of Perceived Drivers, Implications and Strategies. So gender equity remains an important and unresolved issue in the specialty of critical care medicine. In 2017, we saw a perspective published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine suggesting that one, critical care societies establish diversity policies for populating the panels they commission, sharing this responsibility with panel chairs and members, and that merit-based representation should reflect sex, gender, geography, ethnicity, economy, and discipline. Two, authors document and journals report the principles and methods of panel composition for professional document development. Three, publicly available metrics of women's representation on panels for definition documents, consensus statements, and practice guidelines. Four, gender parity policies be incorporated into relevant bylaws within all areas of academic critical care. Five, training on diversity and unconscious bias for all critical care academics, particularly for those in leadership positions. Is there progress? Well, perhaps not. This qualitative interview-based study conducted in 13 Canadian universities with adult critical care medicine training programs invited 371 faculty, 20% women, 80% men, and 105 trainees, 28% women, 72% men, to participate. 48 interviews were conducted to achieve theme saturation. So the goal was to better understand gender inequity through perspective and experience. They report 25 women and 23 men were interviewed. Participants unanimously described critical care medicine as a specialty practice predominantly by men. 90% of women described experiences of being personally belittled or underestimated or professionally e.g. no path to leadership, impacted by gender inequity in their group. One third of men report 
indirect impact, e.g. loss of colleague to other specialty. The postulated drivers of the gender gap included organisation of ICU work, predominantly male leadership and paucity of women in leadership. Women identified open value placed on male dominant traits. A quarter of men perceived women to be inherently unattracted to high pressure medical specialties not identified by women. In terms of implications, women don't feel respected. There is limited specialty development due to lack of diversity. Women experience subtle discrimination. Mentorship programs that span institutions, targeted policies to support family planning and opportunities for modified role descriptions were common strategies suggested to attract and retain women. So it looks like we've got a long way to go. And lastly, in JAMA Internal Medicine, we have clinician family communication about patients' values and preferences in intensive care units. So shared decision-making is becoming a concept that patients, families, society want us to understand and engage in. And there are three components to shared decision-making. The first is information exchange about both clinical issues, that is diagnosis, prognosis and treatment options, and personal issues, patients' values and preferences. The second component is deliberation about how to apply patients' values to the clinical situation. And the third is development of a treatment plan that respects patient preferences. So we have information exchange, deliberation, and development of a treatment plan. A key component of this is the identification and discussion of patients' values. That is what is important to them and preference, what treatment they want. When we get this right, we achieved shared decision-making. When we deliver care aligned to patients' values, we achieve goal-concordant care. To what extent do clinicians and surrogates in intensive care units incorporate critically ill patients' values and preferences into treatment decisions? This secondary analysis of a prospective multi-center cohort study of audio-recorded clinician family conferences between surrogates and clinicians of 249 incapacitated critically ill adults with predicted risk of death greater than 50% has helped answer this question. Conferences were analyzed for statements that exchanged information about incapacitated patient treatment preferences and health-related values and applied them to deliberation and treatment planning. A quantitative coding scheme following Crabtree and Miller's template method and a published framework for discussing incapacitated patients' values and preference with surrogate decision makers was used. They coded for maximal inclusiveness and broadly defined values as patients' lifestyles, activities, attitudes, beliefs and feelings about what makes life worth living, including prior vocation, family ties, substance use, hobbies, functional status, and personality traits. Preference refer to a patient's previously stated wishes about life-extending treatments, that is, oral or written advanced directives. They report that most conferences lack adequate communication, particularly in terms of deliberating about patients' values and preferences and applying them to treatment decisions. 249 patients had an audio recorded conversation involving 450 surrogates, 141 clinicians. 244 included a decision about goals of care. 
26% of conversations contained neither information exchange or deliberation about patients' values and preferences. 68% of conversations included clinicians and surrogate exchange of information about patients' values and preferences. 44% of conversations included specific deliberation of how patients' values apply to the decision. Important end-of-life considerations such as physical, cognitive and social functioning or spirituality were each discussed in less than a third of conversations. Surrogates provided a substitute judgment in 14%. Clinicians made treatment recommendations based on patients' values and preference in only 8% of conversations. So these percentages describe a pattern of conversation where shared decision-making is not the norm. There is, this is either due to a lack of identification of patients' values and preferences or lack of deliberation of how these apply to treatment decisions. As a result, only 1 in 12 meetings resulted in clinicians explicitly basing a treatment recommendation on a patient's values and preferences. There are more nuanced lessons. Structurally, values are discussed more frequently than consideration of how to apply them to the current patient circumstances, suggesting areas to focus on to improve person-centred care. The authors recommend interventions should be developed to better prepare surrogates for these difficult conversations, which is a major focus of advanced care planning research. Interventions are needed to teach clinicians communication skills for eliciting patient values and preferences and then incorporating them into a treatment plan. And finally, increased awareness that patients' values and preferences tend to be a blind spot in these conversations and that may prompt clinicians to discuss them. Certainly food for thought. So that's it for Critique Journal Club in May 2019. Come to the website, have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next couple of months. Thank you.